Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to finally another episode of the Great War Channel podcast. I don't think there is much to say about this episode because we are talk we're going to talk about a topic I didn't know much about. Yeah, it's um a topic that was is one of the tougher ones for for me anyway to learn about and hear about I knew the basics but the but the interview today gave me a much more vivid picture of some examples and some of the process of how this Tulsa race massacre of May and the 1st of June uh, 1921 played out in Oklahoma and so yeah I don't think there's much to add about uh, what our listeners are going to hear. Yeah apart, apart I think the only thing that you should probably take away from this interview is that the consequences and the scars of this Tulsa race massacre, you know, still are, are far reaching into the present and will continue to do so in the future. And I think that's like something that we can say about most events that we cover from a hundred years ago, that they have long lasting consequences that people might not, not even be aware of at the time. But it's doubly true uh, for this event. So without further ado, here is the interview we recorded earlier with Deneen Brown about the Tosa Race Massacre. So I'm joined today on the podcast by a special guest coming from the United States, Deneen Brown. She is a journalist for the Washington Post and an associate professor at the University of Maryland as well. Now, folks, if I were to list all of the awards that she's received for her journalism, we'd be here forever. So let me just say she's received numerous awards for her writing on all sorts of different topics, ranging from climate change in the Canadian Arctic to topics like homelessness in the USA. And we invited her to join us on the Great War podcast today because of her work on the Tulsa Race Massacre of May 1921, which I think it's fair to say is one of the most infamous events in U.S. history. So thank you very much, Ms. Thank you Brown, so much. for accepting our here. invitation and joining us today. All right, so now we have a lot of our listeners out there are from Europe, from different parts of the world. So let's start off with a very brief introduction for those who might be a little bit less familiar with U.S. history. What exactly does the Tulsa Race Massacre, which I think was also sometimes so called the, the Tulsa, Tulsa Race, race Riot, Massacre, uh, what does that refer to? Happened in 1921. Um, up until recently, it uh, had been called the Tulsa Race Riot. And after a commission did more investigation, uh, the name itself was changed to Massacre. What happened um, is in May of 1921 in Tulsa, a white mob descended on the all-Black community of Greenwood, um, destroying thousands of homes, hundreds of businesses, and killing as many as 300 Black people. That began on May 31st, 1921. 
it um, it also um, spilled into the the day of June first, nineteen twenty one. So the anniversary of that massacre is coming up. The hundredth anniversary will begin on May thirty first, twenty twenty one, and also be commemorated on June first, twenty twenty one. Yeah, that's that's one of the reasons why we uh, we decided to focus on it as well for this podcast. All right. So now that we have the the basic idea, let's well, let's get maybe a bit personal, if you'll allow. And I'm always curious when, you know, when our guests focus on a particular topic or are drawn to a particular topic, how that genesis sort of works, uh, how that origin story kind of works. And you've returned to Tulsa, to the topic of the Tulsa massacre a few times or several times, perhaps it's fair to say, in your work. What caused you to start working okay, on the massacre? So How did you get involved in, in the work that you've done? My people are from Oklahoma. I was born in Oklahoma. My father lives in Tulsa. My grandmother was born in an all-Black town called Foley, which is about 60 miles from Tulsa. Um, and my great-grandmother lived in Tulsa. So again, I, I say I'm of the soil in Oklahoma. Um, as a journalist for the Washington Post uh, several years ago, I began writing about Black history for a Washington Post newly created blog called Retropolis. I was one of the founding member members of the blog for the Washington Post. Um, it focuses on history. And essentially, the team of reporters working on, on this blog, if something happens in the new, news, we immediately dive into history, research, sometimes on, on deadline, often on deadline, sometimes within a matter of hours, days, and then we emerge with a narrative, a well-reported narrative. So I was working on, um, for the Washington Post, um, Previous to Tulsa, I was writing stories about lynching. Uh, the Washington Post had sent me to Montgomery, Alabama, where the Equal Justice Initiative opened a lynching, a memorial to lynching victims. More than 4,000 Black people had been lynched in this country from 1877 to 1950. Um, so I covered the lynching. I interviewed. I, um, I flew from Montgomery, Alabama, back to DC, to Kansas, and then drove from Kansas to Oklahoma to visit my father. I love telling the story because it begins on Black Wall Street. I say to my father, this is in the year of 2018, let's go have lunch on Black Wall Street. So we go, we drive down to Black Wall Street, we're having a lunch in a soul food cafe. And I look around and I notice that there are, there's a minor league baseball stadium. There's a gleaming new apartment complex. There's a yoga studio, a yogurt shop, a burger shop. Um, so, and I say to myself, Black Wall Street, the significant piece of land in US history, it's being gentrified. How ironic is that? 
this is a place that is haunted by this massacre that occurred in 1921. I knew because of my research in Black history that as many as 300 Black people had been killed there. And I thought it was uh, such a contradiction that there was so much development going on in that area. And then I flew back to Washington and I had a meeting with my editor and I told her about my trip. And um, her name is Linda Robinson, has great ideas. And she says, Deneen, that's a great story. So the Washington Post sent me back to Washington. I'm sorry, sent me back to Tulsa to begin reporting the story. And I spent uh, several days on the ground with Black activists in Tulsa who have been working for years to get the story recognized. It, it, there's such a pain in Tulsa from this uh, massacre that occurred. And there was so little recognition of what happened. The massacre had been left out of textbooks. Uh, black, I wrote black people whispered about it. White people wouldn't talk about it. It had been covered up essentially. So um, I wrote a story in, in September of 2018. It, it was published on the front page of the Washington Post and it raised questions about what happened in the massacre and an investigation that had ended abruptly uh, 20 years prior. Um, a day later, a community, uh, 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 sorry, a pastor of a church in Tulsa was in a meeting, a community meeting with the current mayor of Tulsa, G.T. Bynum. Uh, mayor Bynum was talking about development that was proposed for Tulsa. And this pastor, Reverend Turner, stands up with my article and he says, you would not have this land had it not been for the massacre. What is the city doing now to repair what happened in 1921? And it was at that meeting that the mayor of Tulsa announced that he would reopen the investigation into claims from survivors that bodies of black people from the 1921 Tulsa race massacre had been buried in mass graves. So the city uh, reopened its investigation into the search for mass graves that may be connected to this massacre. Wow, that's that is quite the connection uh, from personal family stuff to to potentially um, you know criminal archaeology for for lack of a better a better word. Um, now let's let's um, step back to the early 1920s in the United States for a moment. Uh, before we dive into the details of what happens during the massacre, what is the basic situation for the African-American community? I mean, somebody like me who's generally interested in history, I mean, I've heard terms like, you know, Jim Crow, and I know a little bit about the, the basics, but um, if you could sort of summarize, what, what is the situation? How so, does it impact um, the daily life after of After the Civil War, many people know time. about the Civil War. There was a time of Reconstruction in the United States. Um, after, but uh, Reconstruction focusing on um, a, a time when, when Black people prospered. They built towns. They built, built universities. Um, 
when after Lincoln was assassinated, um, you know, the Klan grew, um, troops were removed from the South um, that were there, sent there to protect the world began around the turn of the century, uh, where many cities, communities, towns implemented segregation laws, um, uh, preventing Black people from integrating or and you also have the rise, uh, a second rise of the Klan, which um, uh, terrorized Black communities. Um, in the summer of 1919, I write about this. this. This summer of 1919 is called Red Summer. It's a time when as many as 25 Black uh, communities and towns were um, attacked. Um, by white mobs, um, you had a massacre in, many people don't know, you had a massacre in Washington, D.C., a massacre in Chicago, Illinois, um, Omaha, Nebraska. This reign of terror left thousands of Black people injured and dead. And I write that it set, up, set the stage for the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. So again, the, this reign of terror, um, you find white mobs in um, many cities and communities terrorizing Black people. Many Black people were lynched. Many Black um, people were, were shot. Uh, their homes were burned. Their communities destroyed. Um, it, it, was a, it was an awful, barbaric period in U.S. history. And the great irony is a lot of people don't know that it happened, but it's very much connected to current political events in this country. It sets the stage for what's happening now. Now, in, in the midst of this awful situation for the African-American communities across the country, there can somehow still be a place like Black Wall Street. And so Black Wall Street is something that you, you mentioned earlier in our conversation. It's something that some of our listeners may have heard of as well. It's in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, but okay, what exactly so is Black Wall Black Street? How Wall did it get Street that name? actually um, got the name from Booker T. Washington, who was a philosopher and an intellectual, uh, very well-known Black leader in the early 1900s. Um, he visited Tulsa in 1920, around 1920, and he saw the prosperity in this community, uh, this Black community, which is actually called Greenwood. So the Black community is called Greenwood. Booker T. Washington visits Greenwood. He looks around. He sees really wealthy Black people. There's uh, it's a bustling community. It's one, it's indeed one of the most prosperous communities in the country at this time. You had a black hospital. You had at least two black newspapers, the Tulsa Star and the Oklahoma Sun. You had at least 12 black churches. You had black theaters. You had um, two nationally recognized black schools. Uh, you had hotels, restaurants, a savings and loan. Um, 
it was it was this thriving community. You had black millionaires who were living there. They had oil wells. It was a very prosperous community. And again, it was segregated because of, of the racial divide. So when Booker T. Washington visits in 1920, he looks around and he says, this is Negro Wall Street. He calls it Negro Wall Street. The, uh, the term is later uh, changed to Black Wall Street. Okay, now the events of the massacre, of course, are going to change the face of uh, Black Wall Street. And how did this begin? What was the spark that set off this, you know, three, uh, two or three days? So the massacre, uh, the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, began on May 31st, 1921 after uh, a black teenager whose nickname was Dick Rowland. He was a shoe shiner. He was working in downtown Tulsa and he needed to use the restroom. As I mentioned before, buildings were segregated. So he goes into the Drexel building, which uh, historians say was the only place black people could use the restroom uh, during that time. He or the elevator is operated by a young white teenage girl. Her name is Sarah Page. Um, Dick Rowling gets on the elevator on the first floor. Um, by the time the elevator rises to the third floor and the, the doors open, Sarah Page shrieks or she screams. Something happens. Um, some historians believe that he may have stepped on her foot or may have bumped into her. Um, other, other historians actually believe that they, they were in love. <laughs> so anyway, nevertheless, Sarah Page shrieks. Someone in the building hears this shriek. Dick Rowland runs. Um, and then the, the, the Tulsa Tribune newspaper actually says that Dick Rowland had assaulted Sarah Page. So this is a false accusation. The, tr the charges are, are, are later dropped, but nevertheless, um, during this time period, which I described as, as this reign of terror, any accusation that a black man assaulted a white woman could spark a massacre, could spark lynchings. It could be, well, well, we can get into that, but it could be anything that could spark a massacre, particularly if a white woman is, is a, uh, has, it, it's been said that a black man assaulted her, which of course was not true in this case. Uh, the Tulsa Tribune runs a headline that says "Nab Negro for attacking white girl in elevator. Uh, so word gets out in Tulsa that, that um, about this alleged attack, which again is false. White people began uh, descending on the courthouse lawn where Dick Rowland has been arrested. Uh, Black veterans who recently had returned from World War I, who knew how to fight, who had fought for democracy in Europe, uh, get word that Dick Rowland has been arrested. And they say to themselves, we will not tolerate another lynching. They go to the courthouse. There's a confrontation between the Black veterans and the white mob. A shot goes off and as survivor says, uh, one of the survivors says, all hell breaks loose after the shot goes off. 
And that's when the white mob descends on Greenwood. And the mob starts shooting Black people indiscriminately. They shoot elderly people. They shoot men, women, and children. Um, I recently wrote an account where there was an elderly Black couple in their house on their knees praying. And the mob goes in and shoots them and then lights their house on fire. They shoot a Black man who was well-known. He was handicapped. He rolled around Greenwood in a, in a, in a homemade wheelchair, selling pencils. They shot him. Um, there are reports that airplanes drop bombs on houses in Greenwood. So you see smoke rising from the top of these houses of black, black owned people. The, while the, the houses were on fire, the black people would run out and the mobs would shoot them. They shot a really well-known doctor, um, um, Dr. Dr. Jackson. Um, he was world renowned surgeon. In fact, he was recognized by the Mayo Clinic for his work. He comes out of his house with his hands up and the mob kills him. He later dies of, 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 of bleeding uh, at a concentration camp. It was horrific. If you've seen the movie, uh, the recent movie, The Purge, it gives you some sense of what happened uh, during that two-day time span in Greenwood. Um, and uh, so at the end of this period, um, you have Black bodies lying in the street. Black people who have survived are rounded up and they're taken to what historians call concentration camps. Literally, they're called concentration camps. They're rounded up, they're taken to the fairgrounds, they're taken to a convention center. Some of the Black men go in, they don't come out, but there are really famous photos of Black men lined up marching down the streets of Greenwood with their hands raised like this high in the air. And they're, they're um, white men are pointing guns at them, directing their way. Yeah, I mean, that uh, kind of leaves one at a loss uh, for uh, words, actually, when, when one gets into the details of, um, of that nature. Um, a question actually just came to me as you were recounting that the mobs that are perpetrating this uh, massacre, and as far as I understand, of course, they were burning businesses and homes as well. Uh, what's the relationship between them and like the police or the state National Guard or the kind of organs of the state that in theory so are interested historians, in maintaining order? Uh... Um, who've done reporting on this or research on this say that the white mobs were actually deputized by the city. They were deputized and given, in some cases, ammunition to carry out this, this massacre. Uh, police stood aside. Um, there are reports that the fire department actually was prevented from going into Greenwood to put out the fires. Um, there are reports that city leaders participated in this massacre. So, um, yes, it was it was something that survivors said was orchestrated by the, the city back in 1921. Some of the city and civic leaders were members of the Klan. 
So how does it then stop? How, how does it sort of come to an well, end? Well, um, the governor calls uh, the in the National Guard. And um, the National Guard um, actually is, is called in to stop the, the massacre. But there are also reports that the National Guard participated in the killing of Black people. But it does end on June 1st um, after there's a call by the governor to um, stop the violence. So what, what is the kind of, what is then the story for the black community in Greenwood afterwards? And, you know, what, what are the kind of consequences for them of, of this? And what are the consequences, if you will, or, or what's the story then of the white community and the perpetrators uh, in Tulsa afterwards? Like, how does this continue um, as so of June 2nd. The day after the massacre, Greenwood is smoldering. It's burning. And as I mentioned before, many of the Black survivors, they're literally in concentration camps. They're, they're, they've been rounded up. Um, they cannot leave uh, these camps unless a white family vouches for them. So you will have some white families who have lost their labor force, uh, say the family wants its maid back, you know, or its driver, and they might go to the concent concentration camp and uh, sign out, you know, the black person who worked for them. Um, there are reports that black men were pulled out of these camps to bury uh, the, the, the black people who were dead in the streets. There are, are reports from, from survivors that black people were buried in mass graves. This gets us back to what uh, the city is searching for now. Um, so you have dead uh, people, you have buildings burning, you have black people in concentration camps. There are also reports that black people fled the city. Um, many of them went to the nearby all black towns like the one that my grandmother was born in, Boley, Oklahoma. Some black people fled all the way to Kansas City, Topeka, Chicago, um, Wichita, they left Tulsa, left. Some of the, uh, the black leaders who stayed in Tulsa wanted to rebuild. And in fact, they did rebuild, but the, the city uh, tried to prevent them from building with these really restrictive building codes, but they were over, able to overcome that. And Greenwood was rebuilt. It was rebuilt. Um, later in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, because of, of a federal program called Urban Renewal, which Black people called Negro Removal, a highway was built right through the heart of Greenwood. And also because of uh, the integration, the decline of segregation, um, Greenwood um, lost population. So now uh, Greenwood, if you go to Tulsa, it's, it, it seems to be reduced to one city block. And please take note, at the time in 1921, it was, was this thriving community, as I mentioned, it was prosperous. It was more than 35 square blocks, but now it's just one square block. And uh, you know, as I mentioned before, it has a highway that 
you know, all the signs of gentrification, yoga shop, apartment building, minor league baseball stadium. Um, So you have activists in Tulsa now who are demanding that the city pay reparations to survivors of this massacre and also descendants of survivors of the massacre. There is a, each Wednesday, the Reverend Robert Turner of Vernon AME Church, he goes to City Hall and he takes a megaphone and he reminds white people passing by what happened in 1921. He says, there was a massacre in the city. Women were killed, men were killed, babies, babies were killed, buildings were burned. Tulsa, you have to, you have to repair what happened. You have to repair what happened. And he's demanding reparations. Now, I, I don't know how to phrase this. I guess I would say, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, even with the basic, you know, the basic uh, knowledge, limited knowledge that I have of uh, the massacre. But what happens to those who there were no arrests of perpetrators? Uh, it's really interesting because at the University of Tulsa archives, there are postcards. Many of the white perpetrators took pictures standing over the the bodies of dead black people and they would mail them. That was something that people did in the United States after lynchings and massacres was horrible. There are pictures of these perpetrators, but no white person was ever arrested uh, and and charged with any any connection with the massacre. And um, so um, there are also reports um, when I went there to the library I read reports where city city leaders just they called it an embarrassment. They just wanted it, you know, people to forget about it. They covered it up. They left it out of textbooks. White people would not talk about it. And then, uh, as I mentioned before, black people only whispered about it. And uh, so you would find people in the 1980s and 1990s who had no knowledge that this massacre occurred in Tulsa until um, a state uh, commission was formed by uh, then state um, legislator Don Ross, who demanded um, that the state investigate what happened in Tulsa. And what's really interesting about how this commission started is it started after the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City. You may have heard about that. And a reporter is at a press conference and he says, this is the worst incident incident of of domestic terror in the country. And Don Ross, who is from Tulsa, stood up and said, no, the worst incident of racial, I'm sorry, of, of domestic terrorism occurred in Tulsa right down the road. So this is the this is the 1995 bombing in Oklahoma City, I believe, uh, by Timothy McVeigh, who was kind of a right wing extremist a terrorist. Yeah. If I so at that press conference, that's the um, one that's being compared. Saying, okay. Oh, this is horrible. This is horrible, and it indeed was horrible. But 
they had no idea that this massacre had occurred in Tulsa. So that, that federal building was bombed in Oklahoma City. That's about 60 miles from Tulsa. It's just straight down the highway. And at the, again, at the press conference, Don Ross stands up and says, you have to know about this massacre that occurred in Tulsa in 1921. And that's that sparked uh, what they call the Tulsa Race Riot Commission. And um, the governor um, charged that commission in 1998 with investigating what happened during the massacre in 1921. So they, they go out, go about investigating there at the time in 1998, you still had many survivors of this massacre, eyewitnesses of the massacre who were alive, who could tell this commission, this is what I saw. So you have, um, if you look at any of the archival footage and video, you'll, you'll see, um, witnessed his children. One of them talked about um, um, his mother um, yelling at him and his sisters to hide under the bed, hide on the, on, under the bed. A white mob is coming, so they hide under the bed. And he was five at the time. This survivor's name is George Monroe. He was five years old. He's hiding under, under the bed, and white men are coming into his house, and they're like stealing things of value. And one of the white men steps on his, his fingers and George begins to scream, but his, his sister covers his mouth. And uh, after the white men leave the house, they set it afire. And um, George and his siblings, they have to escape a burning house. You have uh, other survivors on, on video that was captured by uh, Don Ross's son, Kevin Ross who was part of this commission, he went about um, interviewing these survivors and they just told the most horrific stories. Um, another um, survivor talks about seeing airplanes dropping these bombs on houses. You have other survivors, um, Olivia, um, Olivia Hooker is a, a very um, well-known survivor who talked about um, she called them the marauders coming into her house and, and taking everything of value and then setting her house on fire. And she, again, was a five-year-old old, five year old girl who, who believed in, uh, that her country would protect her. And um, she goes outside, she sees a flag on a, a, a gun of some sort, and her mother says to her, look, Olivia, your country is shooting at you. So that's a very graphic story told by survivors. So again, uh, this Tulsa Race Riot Commission, uh, which was established in 1998, investigates the Tulsa Race Massacre. It interviews survivors. It does amazing work. It recommends that the city pay reparations. And it also re recommends that the city begin excavating for mass graves. But the, the then mayor of Tulsa decided to close that investigation without excavation. And for nearly 20 years, the case sat dormant until 2018, when I come back to Tulsa and I write the story. 
and the mayor decides to reopen the investigation. I don't take any credit for this, um, not at all. I, I believe there have been descendants of survivors in Tulsa and activists, Black activists on the ground who have dem been demanding that the city just recognize this um, event and do something about it. So again, I just wrote the story um, that appeared in the Washington Post and um, I'm just a writer, but there are people on the ground who are doing really incredible work with uh, trying to keep the memory alive of, of this horrible event that occurred in 1921. Now, that investigation that was reopened in 2018 it is still ongoing at the moment? Is that, so, what's, yes, what's the um, latest? Uh, that that investigation, of... which was reopened by, again, Mayor G.T. Bynum, he's the current mayor of Tulsa. He um, announces that he's reopening this investigation. And um, so this is the timeline. In October of 2019, the city began searching with ground penetrating radar. So it, it went, the city went back to these sites that that commission back in 1998 um, found. And um, in December of 2019, the city and the scientists and the archeologists and anthropologists working on this, this investigation announced that it found anomalies which were consistent with mass graves. So the anomalies were, again, detected by the ground-penetrating radar. Um, that was, again, announced in December 2019. I remember a scientist uh, on stage saying, we see these anomalies, they look consistent with mass graves, but we don't know what's underneath the ground unless we dig. In July of 2020, the city began excavating, actually digging in the ground for mass graves. That was July 2020 during this pandemic. Of a cemetery, Oakland Cemetery, they began digging, but they found no human re remains in that site. The city decided to expand its search for these mass graves. And then in October 2020, it again began digging in another site of the cemetery. Um, which is the black section of the cemetery. And um, it's during that dig, it came across a mass grave. In fact, the state archeologist says what they found was consistent with a mass grave. They, uh, they found as many as, um, as 12 coffins. And she, say, she said there may be as many as 30 in this pit. It's like one pit. Um, that they discovered. So what's happening now is the oversight committee and city officials, uh, they're putting in a request to a local court to get permission to exhume the remains and then examine the remains for any signs of trauma. So they're gonna be looking for any gunshot uh, wounds in the bones or any any charred bones that would indicate the victims were burned. And then if they find signs of trauma, they will um, 
released a report connecting it to the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. So that's what's happening now. Um, again, the city is requesting permission to exhume these bones. And then once that, that uh, permission is granted, the scientists will examine the bones for any signs of trauma. So 100 years ago, um, in some ways, it doesn't seem like that far in the past when, you know, the community on the ground there is still dealing with the, the kind of situation that you've just described. So, Ms. Brown, I want to thank you very much for having joined us today and uh, having taken us through the history of the Tulsa Race Massacre, but also kind of the present of the Tulsa Race Massacre. It's an important event for everybody to understand. Thank you and, so much for having uh, yeah, we appreciate me. Thank you, you so much for highlighting this really important event in history. All right, now for all our listeners out there, if you are interested in learning more about some of the topics that we've discussed with Ms. Brown today, she's been involved with two different documentaries that are going to be coming out um, in the next short little while, actually. One is called Tulsa, the Fire and the Forgotten, and that's going to come out on PBS, American television station, on May 31st. And another one on the Red Summer of 1919 is going to come out on Nat Geo on June 1st. So you can, uh, you can learn more about these topics by checking out those documentaries. Thank you Thank once you. again, Ms. Brown, here. for having joined us today.